Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Andre the Beast Berto is a two-time boxing welterweight world champion, 2004 Haitian Olympian, and an advocate for Haitian relief effort. Since his professional boxing debut, Berto has become known for his toughness, formidable punching power, and fast hand speed. But now, Andre utilizes those skills cultivated as a world champion to take on the world of entrepreneurship by storm while helping give back to those in the nonprofit world and work that he does. Andre, thank you so much for being here today, my friend. It's been a while and uh, you have got a lot going on. Now it's an honor to have you, my friend. Yeah, definitely, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And the first time we spoke, we talked about for you, the power of writing things down, journaling, doing all that stuff. And so tell us, when did that start for you and why is that so important? And it tells the other people, listen, at your level, if you're doing it, they should absolutely be doing it, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, at a very young age, I mean, that was something that my dad instilled into me, pretty much letting me know, like, listen, you know, anything that you want to do, anything that you have a passion for, any type of goals or things of that nature, write it down. It makes it a little more powerful that you can see it every day, makes it a little more attainable. It has power, you know, and just writing it down. And that's something that, that I've always did, you know, since I was a young kid, actually. You know, I tell people about this little notepad. I've had a notepad probably when I was probably in second grade, I wrote down every goal in in my amateur, in my amateur ranks of boxing, what I wanted just to accomplish it. Either, you know, being a state champion, national champion, you know, going to 2004 Olympic Games, just all these different things. And of course, turning pro. And I literally, you know, I mean, after my first pro fight, I still had that notepad. And I literally checked everything off of that box. And it was just something that always just made me feel like it was real just to be able to write it down and to be able to see it and to want to attack it and try to achieve it every second of every day. You know, and I always had something to push me toward my goals that were written down that notepad. Absolutely. When I work with people, I talk about a power list and that sets the intention for the day. So like when you have these two or three critical things and you're asking yourself right now, is what I'm doing getting me closer to that? If it's not, you need to kick that stuff out of there and you need to focus. And that's a great way to do it. So you just kept looking at that pad over and over again to stay just self-audited on what was important for you. Over and over again as a kid. I mean, I was always, you know, very disciplined as a young kid because my father, he was like a general in the household. So, you know, he didn't play any games, but of course everything was done in the household to just pretty much just shape us as very young men. You know, everything that we did, you know, even if it was discipline. You know, okay, you're doing 500 push-ups and 500 squats before you go to school. This was third or fourth grade. And okay, you know, you say you wanted to box. Okay, I'm going to make sure to put in the work to fight. So 
So it was him waking me up at four or five o'clock in the morning before school and running five miles and him in that car right behind me. So it was like the only thing I knew at a very young age, discipline and hard work and everything that had to come behind that. And just also just by being raised by two immigrant parents from Haiti, just being able to see our circumstances and seeing everything that they had to do to make sure that we had, you know, okay life. We had to miss out on a lot of things that a lot of other kids had, and we couldn't get this, we couldn't get that, and we missed out on certain new Jordans coming out or new clothes, you know, for school on Christmas and you know, a lot of those things. I think we're just a lot more focused to make sure that we have what we had to eat and to be able to have enough energy to get to work the next morning. And it was also powerful because when you and I had spoken before, and one of the first things I said was I see in the entrepreneurial space that everybody wants to learn or they claim that they want to learn, but they're not writing things down, they're not putting it into play. So knowledge that is acquired but not utilized is the equivalent of ignorance. And that's when you and I really connected. Talk to us about that and what you see going on right now. Yeah, I think when it comes to a lot of people in general, and of course, you know, right now, since COVID, there's a lot of information that's out right now. A lot of people got put into a space of just having their livelihoods or or situations just taken away from them. So in turn, it kind of put them in a position to try to pivot. So there's a lot of different things are out on the internet now, you know, different ways to make money or different ways to do this, different ways to do that. But I think a lot of people, they fall so much in love with just the knowledge of sitting in a seat and learning more, but being a lot more allergic to execution. And that's why I believe a lot of people fall short. I've been to a few, you know, masterminds myself. Of course, I have big friends in that space. And I said, I had my lad and a few other guys. But I see a trend that happens now. It's almost like a field trip for everyone. All these entrepreneurs, I see them at every other mastermind. It's kind of turning into a field trip so they can see their friends instead of just taking that type of information and really, you know, trying to utilize it, man, and just and just dial again. Because I don't think you need to go to that many masterminds, especially if you are trying to attack a certain space. And you go and learn from the best. I believe it's time for you to take the information, go home and, and put it to work. You know, we see instead of make it happen first and then you can go around and do your thing. Yeah, write it down, put it in a notebook, put it up there, put it into play. And then that's the other thing. I understand that it's important to see our friends or to network and to create your network. That is important. But like you said, eventually it's like, okay, so many different people I can see. There's so many different things I can hear. And when we're busy, we don't have time. We have to execute. We don't have time to fly over the place. You and I speak a lot, so we're doing that. But even then, it's still business. We're still helping. We're still giving. That's how we get to that. And then there's a million things I want to ask you, but I want to be respectful of your time. I talked about how much I love your uppercut and how you got that from Mike Tyson. That was a big influence on you. You would take that uppercut, lift the chin, come back with the hook. Here comes the cross. You would come back. But Tyson influenced you not only in the ring, but it was almost like his life outside the ring was a cautionary tale as an entrepreneur transitioning. Tell us about how that influenced you and what we can learn from that. I mean, a lot of people, either they know him, they learn about Mike Tyson's story to make $300 million and just blow it. And if you think about it, like a lot of people don't understand because he was so impactful at the time. Like his reign, to be honest, it was only five years from him being that monster of a Mike Tyson to being a world champion to it going into destruction. It was only like a five-year span. Of course, to anybody else looking out, I mean, it looks like he's just been 
the man for 20 years, but he went through a lot of his ups and downs. Of course, I've known Mike for a very long time, but to be able to take a kid for inner city like that, of course, you know, not having the knowledge of any type of financial literacy and just giving him a check, you know, for 10 million, 20 million, 100 million bucks, kind of hard to have any type of control of that type of situation. And I think it all just goes back to just trying to surround yourself with the right people. So he had a lot of bad people around him. You know, he didn't have really real good guys, no real knowledge around him. And what happens like it always happens. You see a continued cycle when it comes to a lot of athletes. They get that check. They're very much tremendous athletes. Uh, The industry puts them on that platform. They perform and they just hand them a check. A lot of these guys who come from the inner cities, we never had these certain type of things. We love watching this glamorous life on TV and we want to taste them. We want to buy the cars. We want to buy this. We want to buy that. You have all your homies with you, about 20 or 30 of them, and you're paying for everything else. (laughs) Once that decline happens, that's what they don't get ready for. And that's what they don't think about. I mean, even me and my, you know, how of my career, I've never really had too much of thought of everything, you know, falling off at a tremendous rate at all. I don't think anybody does, you know, especially as being an athlete. But of course, I cautioned myself early because I came from a situation always had in the back of my mind where I came from, always. You know, all those situations growing up, you know, me sleeping in the room with five other siblings and just understanding and seeing just vividly my mom crying when the lights got shut off. Those things always played in my head, it didn't matter how much money I had. Those things always played in my head. So I always wanted to try to make sure I set my foundation right, no matter what happened. So when I turned pro, it was like, okay, listen. A lot has come my way, but I know I need to set up this. I need to set this up. I need to set my 401ks and my retirement. Out of seven. That was the first thing I did before I even tried to have a little bit of fun. And that's everything. That's so smart. Because like you said, when Customato was in Mike Tyson's life, he was the father figure. Like he really kept him on the straight and narrow. And for those of us that are listening and saying, oh, well, that's the sound of an athlete that gets $10 million, $100 million. Listen, I guarantee I can write anybody a check for $10 million right now and say, here you go, what do I do with it? I don't care. And they're going to fall into the same issues? Of course. You see it all the time. You know, a lot of these people that win the lottery, they're broken four or five years. You know what I mean? If you don't have the understanding, if you don't have the knowledge, if you don't have that financial literacy, uh, you know, foundation, or even if you don't, which a lot of us don't, but to be able to want to go seek it, and try to understand it or try to find any type of mentor, try to find someone that can help you in that space. That's on you. That's going to be on you at the end of the day. You have to want to. So, you know, like I said, it's kind of hard. It's human nature to want to to get that type of money and just live a life that they've never lived, you know, live a life that they've always seen in the magazines or on TV. So, you know, I understand it. But, you know, I mean, this life is nothing to play with. That's it. We don't know how long we have and we don't know how long the bank account is going to be there. So you actually found people when you first got started that helped you kind of set these things up to get established so that it would make a lot more sense. Yeah, my thing was me coming from, uh, you know, when I from Florida, I had another guy, you know, Trace McGrady, actually, which um, was in one of the top um, young guys in the NBA. So we grew up together and like both of us, we grew up in that very tough environment. But for me, you know, I was able to see Tracy do it. So I'm like, okay, I'm next up. But at the same time, I'm seeing so many people around me, other fighters, or these other athletes in general, they fall short. Why are all these boxers going broke right after they retire? Not even while they're fighting. Why? 
And I sat there and I tried to put it in place. And I'm like, okay, you know, boxing doesn't have a union. Football, basketball, they have a union. They kind of put people in place somewhat when it comes to, you know, business managers, accountants, agents, you know, boxing, it's none of that. It's literally, we hear about you. You're from this inner city tough area, but you can fight your ass off. Listen, come on. I'm going to put you on. I'm going to put you in the ring. You knock somebody out. Right after the fight, I'm going to give you a check. 20000 100000 million bucks. I mean, so it made sense to me. So like in 2004, when I was about to go to the Olympics, yeah, I sat down with Tracy and I told him what I wanted to do. I told him that I wanted to kind of set my foundation, you know, somewhat like of an athlete that has a union already put together. So, you know, I sat down with a lot of his managers, his accountants, his business managers, his lawyers. And I told them what the situation was. Of course, they knew about me because I was making a lot of headway. And I let them know, listen, I'm about to hit this Olympic Games. And right after that, pro time. So that's when all the money comes to play, I need to put this team together. So, yeah, I sat down with them for weeks just to get information, just learning. And I asked a lot of questions. <laughs> I asked a lot, a lot of questions, man, so I can really just get the grip on everything that they bring to the table. And then I formed my team, man. They informed me so much, you know, even just leading it. So as soon as that first bit of money came, man, you know, we're already, you know, set on how we had to handle it. And I guarantee everyone, he wrote down a lot of things when he was in those meetings, when he was talking about setting that team up. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Definitely. And the thing too is we both know Ed Milet and Ed has told people many times, he says, I know a lot of people that get rich, but I know a lot of people that used to be rich that go broke because like you said, they're so busy trying to look like this or trying to buy the new thing or whatever. Again, get everything in order. And we hear the discipline is necessary. We see that it takes time. But again, if you're just living for this million and then the taxes are taken out and then you're doing this and now you're doing that. And now all of a sudden that million dollars isn't what it used to be and it goes away quick. And sometimes it's harder to earn than it is to hold on to. Oh, definitely. Definitely. But I don't think that people really understand that. Of course, you know, growing up, you know, young, you know, you hear a million bucks and that sounds like. I mean, you're rich. Once you get into that type of game and the type of tax bracket that you're in and the type of new things that you love to indulge in and, you know, purchase that million bucks flies. Well, we were talking about goals and how many times of all the goals that we have of being a person, a warrior, a man, a leader, a husband, the material one is actually the easiest to acquire once we're there. But all these other things are the ones that take that time, take that discipline, take that consistency to get to that place. That's where you're working on now. And that's why you're giving back. That's why you're working so hard with your businesses. Tell people about the businesses that you have, the things you have that are coming forward, and then the other work that you do to help out. Man. I know you've got a bunch, so that's why I'm going to let you tell them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I got a lot going on. Of course, I've been you know, heavily into the real estate for since the beginning of my career. You know, when it comes to owning properties, you know, here, you know, owning properties in the Caribbean as well. We have Strike that's coming here soon. There's also a fitness apparel. I mean, it's a fitness equipment you know, line that's coming. When I'm talking about boxing gloves, bags, you know, reflex bags, a lot of different things that just get you in shape in the right way. So I have a great team that's involved in that. You know, for some reason, you know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine that, I mean, it used to be you know one of Jeff Bezos' partners, and he was telling me, he's like, listen, how come, you know, fighters or these people are in on your level, they haven't really you know, tackled that niche yet? I'm like, what you mean? It's like, yeah, we don't really see too many people that really tackled that niche, especially like on the Amazon circuit or just or just wherever. 
I'm like, listen, I don't know. The only person that we always hear about is George Foreman, and of course he has his grills. But to be able to really, you know, sit into my niche and really, you know, fine-tune it because of just me being who I am, I've been in the heat of the battle. So I understand what we need as athletes. I understand what people, uh, just everyday people, you know, may enjoy as well, just being able to work out and just being able to be comfortable doing it. So we got that. We have my harvest line is about to come out, you know, here soon. I'm um, as active, you know, where as well. Should be tremendous. I got a great team that's involved in that. The same type of deal, just being this athlete, just knowing what we like, knowing what we want. Man, I have, um, I have equity and handful of companies, but I have another company I'm very excited about. It's called Breakout, um, a social media platform company that's coming out. I, I believe we roll out in about two to three weeks. And I think that's going to be heavy. I mean, it's a social media platform, but it caters on the crypto side as well, you know, crypto and NFT side as well. So should be cool. Yeah, you got your hands on a lot of places, but that's how we do it. You do it the right way. And for everybody that wants to know more about that, they can follow you on social media, on YouTube, on just Andre Berto. Just go from that. And Andre Berto, man. And Andre Berto, follow me on all my social platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, the LinkedIn's, the YouTubes. I'm out here. He's out there. He's for it. He's there for it. The other thing too is we see a lot of people that are wanting to get into entrepreneurship right now. What is the worst piece of advice that you hear people continually repeating <laughs> that you and I know to be false? I miss a lot of them, but I think, you know, one is entrepreneurs have seven, eight streams of income, which I believe that they do. But I think what gets misconstrued is the fact that it gets people kind of scatterbrained just by just by hearing that, you know, they attack about seven, eight you know, different things at one time and not really having the experience in any of them, not putting the right team together like on any of them or having a team that's experienced. And they just want to boom, 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 boom. But what's not being told is a lot of these very successful people, they really niche down and they find that one situation that they really scale and make amazing. And of course, with that income, they take that income to multiply it in different ways. But I think, so like with that, I think that we should probably niche down, find something, find one thing that you can just dominate and take over. And then after that, with that income, spread it out a little bit. I'm sure that you've read Christopher Lockhead's book called Niche Down, where he's talking about, if you can own that category, like you were talking about earlier about owning this niche, once you own that, like you own 75% of that pie for life. And no matter who else comes in, they're all fighting for that 25%, but Berto's still winning. He's still taking it. And the whole time you're in that niche, you're leveling up and people are chasing who you used to be. You're like, man, that's fine. Go ahead and chase that because I'm three or four steps ahead of you. Oh, by the way, now I'm branching out. And something else that he keeps mentioning, everybody, I want you to pay attention. He keeps mentioning team. He understands that he's not trying to do everything. He's like, this is what I do well. And like you said, I have this area that I just crush. And now I hire out these other people that can build this, that can work on this, right? You have to if you really want to try to scale. I was a victim of it as well at the beginning. I wanted to do everything myself, but that's the only way you're going to be able to scale the right way. The ideal situation, to be honest, is to be able to create these businesses, be able to implement the right systems and processes and the right people in place so you can step back a little bit. You don't want to just have another job for the rest of your life. You want to be able to create something amazing and be able to put a strong team around it, you know, so you'll be able to move around as well. That's absolutely it. And 
again, understanding that because everybody talks about scaling, but they don't understand that if they don't have an efficient team, efficient processes already, they're scaling the inefficiency, they're scaling the cancer in that company, and they can scale them way to bankruptcy if they're not careful, right? Exactly. You got to have the right people. Like, I mean, I think that's the only way to really, really scale them the right way. Put the right people in, experienced people, not your brothers and your, <laughs> and your cousins. And that, put the right experienced people in place, man, so you can sit back and just watch this thing go. You, know, you can make more money that way. You can hire more employees. You can take your systems and process to a complete, you know I mean, another level as well. Like I say, just keep scaling up. That's it. And you're doing it in a way, like you said, to where you don't have to be in it the whole time. You can step back. You can look at it. You have these people reporting to you. You start getting the KPIs. You start looking at what's important. Here's the P&L. Where are we at? Do we still want to do this? And like you said, now, once you have this a certain amount of money, now when you go to this other form of income, you can do it efficiently. And what else? Being an entrepreneur in this one space has served you. So now you can take that lesson and put it into this other area, as opposed to having to reinvent the wheel every time, figure it out every time. Every time. You want to be able to get that time back, man. I mean, nothing like, you know, having a tremendous business and having great people, you know, pretty much running it and putting it in place, but still have your time. Be able to support your family, be able to go here, do this, do that, and to be able to tap into a lot of other resources as well and start something else. Absolutely. And for those of you that are saying, well, it costs money to get a team, I understand that. But what was he always talking about? He's talking about time. If I can compress that time from two years to six months, that year and a half that I can make money in the meantime, that compounds, that ROI is so powerful. And it's like compounding interest. It just keeps coming back to us. There's, like I said, a million things, but I'd love to talk to you also about, I've never met a fighter or a warrior that has not gone through adversity in their life. And you've been through plenty of adversity in the ring outside the ring, transitioning from the ring. Can you tell us about a time in your life where at the time you felt like you were pushed to your limit, like you couldn't go any further and yet you found the courage. And when you got through it, you were like, man, I learned so much from that. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you say that. I mean, it all kind of has gone a certain type of way on how I started this clothing brand, actually. It's called The Harvest. So the toughest time that I've had, and I went through a situation, you know, getting ready for a fight. I had a slight tear in my shoulder. I wanted to fight anyway. So I fought, I tore my shoulder, like I think the second or third round, but I kept going. So I didn't have that surgery. And after the surgery, I had what they call the frozen shoulder. So my shoulder was in a sling, but all the ligaments and tendons, they pretty much just were pretty stiff right there. Even after they took the sling off, my arm was like this for probably six months. And so just going to rehab every day, they're just pulling and yanking this arm to try to find flexibility into it. So it was painful, tremendously painful. And the funny thing about it is, I mean, now rehab, that's why I met Conor McGregor too. So I met him years ago. But yeah, so just being in that position, feeling that my gift was taken away from me and just not knowing why. You know, just being in that position, you know, being so dominant for so many years and now going through a certain type of pain, I didn't think I was going to be able to continue dealing with. So me, I didn't want anybody around me. I didn't want friends around me, nothing. And I remember just sitting in the house and I went to church this one night just to get out of the house and just try to find some type of clarity. And I'm sitting in the back pew and that night, that Pacific night, the pastor was speaking about the harvest. So it's basically just saying how you're going to have, you know, some tough seasons, but continue to just to keep sowing your seeds and your harvest will come. And I just took that. And for some reason, that just sunk into me that night. And then I went to rehab the next morning. 
kind of got rid of all my nerves. I kind of pushed all the frustration away. And I just stayed focused and continued going to rehab, just having fun and just sowing my seeds and continue just working on that. And the speed of the recovery just went like that. And I got a chance to get cleared up. I got a chance to get cleared up by the doctor. So I went to the gym probably three or four days after. I was just so excited. I was just so excited just being able just to be able just to punch something again because like I said, I was handicapped for so long and just feeling like I just had another chance. So I'm in the gym by myself. I'm banging away. Even though it was my first day, I was supposed to relax. But I'm in there going crazy. I'm sweating all over the floor. I'm just going crazy. And I was in the gym, you know, just by myself. And here comes was like Andre Ward, a good friend of mine, you know, Olympic gold medalist at the same game as me. He walked into the gym. He said, oh, whoa, whoa, wait, hold on. Man. What are you doing? What are you doing? Relax, relax. And I just remember punching on the bag and I slowed down. I looked at him and I said, the harvest is coming. And he was like, oh, I don't know what that means, but that is amazing. I said, oh, he said, oh, that was good. And after that, he would not let me live that down. Every time he seen me, he was like, the harvest is coming. Like, you got to do something with that. You got to do something with that. I mean, that's pretty much how my line came about because just me getting ready for my next fight after being out for a year after that tear, after me thinking that it was done, that I possibly was over. And I was at a point I was okay with that. Because I felt that, you know, I've achieved so much. I retired my parents and I had millions in the bank. And if this was what God wants for me, I need to just be grateful that I was in in a lot better situation. And as soon as that happened, as soon as I was like that, just mentally, everything just happened so fast on the recovery side of things. And everything just started progressing quickly. You know, pretty much him just letting me know, like, all right, now, now I'm not through with you. So, you know, at that point, and after that, man, I'm getting ready for my next fight. And my hashtag on like every post was the harvest is coming. And I'm getting tons of fans hitting me up, and texting me and trying to find out what that means. The reporters calling me, interview about the fight, but they asked me, what does the harvest mean? Nah, 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 the harvest is coming, what does that mean? I went to the fight. I showed up. Fans Everywhere in the arena, they made their own harvest shirts. The harvest is coming. The harvest is coming. So after that, man, I felt it was something that was pretty heavy and significant, you know, especially in the position that I was in at the time. And I said, man, I need to take this around with it. It's such a powerful story. And it reflects my experience. I think, you know, I talk about it in my book and my TEDx to get to adversity, but I was paralyzed from the neck down, preparing to deploy in the military, told I'd never walk again, flat lie on the table twice. And I was like mad as hell for months. But then when I had, like you're talking about that radical acceptance, and when I had genuine gratitude, not the bullshit gratitude they're based pushing, but the real gratitude, that's when my life changed. And that's when I started having that ability to recover. But until then, because everybody talks about gratitude now, but they don't feel it. It ain't real. They're trying to impress people with it. But that real gratitude, that real ability to have that and to feel that, that changes everything. So those of you that say that you're grateful, but you're just sitting on your hands and you're not doing stuff. If you're grateful, you act like it. And that's what you're doing. You get that second chance, you're attacking everything that you're doing now. I know that we only have a little bit more time here, but tell me about that fight with Floyd. Tell me about that war. Tell me about what puts you in that place to be your best. I mean, it's a great situation. Of course, just being grateful and the fact that just me, just being a kid from a small town, being able to get that type of, uh, you know, it's crazy. Of course, I worked hard for it. And just the preparation for that fight 
Now, I've known Floyd since I've been, you know, 16 years old. So he wasn't anybody new to me, somebody I've watched, you know, since I was a kid. So I kind of knew his whole strategy of style, how he likes to pull punches, how he likes to dodge, how he likes to jab up top, jab down bottom. You know, all his punching patterns, I've known it, you know, like the back of my head. So to be honest, getting ready for that fight, of course, I went in incredible shape, but it was more than anything I was trying to prepare myself mentally for the circus that he brought because I knew, because I've known Floyd for so long, I've been to a lot of his fights and I understand the circus that comes with him. I've seen great fighters walk into that type of arena in that type of situation with him and they're just blind or they just get cold or that same fighter that you know of being, you know, an animal doesn't look the same, you know, once they're in there with them. And I think, you know, all that just has something to do with just the atmosphere in general. You know, this whole mystique of fighting for many money Mayweather feed people before they even walk into the ring. I think for me, it was more of a mental situation for me, just me preparing myself, you know, mentally for the whole situation. And, you know, I think I just did it, you know, perfectly, man. I walked in there like it was just another fight. I was in great shape. I didn't respect him. You know, and I showed that and, you know, I wanted him to know that I was going to be in his face every second of every round. I knew I was at a huge disadvantage because of who he was, but I let him know. I continued to let him know, like even in the ring, in the clinches, I let him know, okay, if you slip up, (laughs) if you slip up one time, it's over. So, so, you know, it was dope. And the thing too is, like you said, he likes creating chaos because that's where he thrives. He wants you to feel off balance. And like you said, we see all kinds of fighters in the ring, in the gym, and they're handling everybody. And then they walk out to the lights and now there's the crowd and you've got the people that are screaming for you, which is great. But then you get the people that don't want you to win. And now you're starting to question yourself. Did I do enough? Did I work hard enough? Am I in the right shape? And you can't do that when you're walking in. It's a whole different beast of what people understand, man, when it comes to this fight game. You know, we got a lot of fighters we call gym fighters. The fighters that look tremendous. I mean, they could be, you know, 30-time world champions in the gym, but as soon as they walk out to the ring, you know, they just fold. You know, you need to just understand, I mean, you know, you're talking about being back in the dressing room and, and just finally being in the room and hearing you know, thousands of people you know, out there in a crowd waiting for you. And nine times out of 10, they always put you in a dressing room, number, you know, right next to your opponent. So you hear them getting ready. You hear them getting prepared. You hear them hitting the pads and his team cheering him on. So you have to have a different type of confidence and assurance in your preparation and just you yeah, as a fighter and as a man to be able to walk out there. When that lady walks, when she comes and knocks on that door and said, okay, you got two minutes. Okay, you got one minute. It's time to walk. You see them cameras come right in that room. Get on your face. See that bright light on those cameras. And now it's, you know, it's go time. You're walking out in that arena. Look and you see thousands of people just some cheering and some just, I mean, they're yelling at you, telling you you're going to get knocked out. And just being able just to walk in that ring, man, you see another man on the other side literally preparing to try to kill you for the last eight, nine weeks. Now it's time to show and prove in front of millions around the world. Nobody can help you. Your whole team that was with you in the last eight, nine weeks, they're going to walk out of that ring to you and him. So I think you just have to be a different type of individual to love that. 
And, you know, I was one of those guys and I loved it. And what were you telling yourself? What was like a mantra you were saying to yourself as you were walking out to keep you focused? Because like you said, these guys that are great in the gym, when somebody comes at them and they don't respect them, like you said, that's when they start to kind of, they're like, oh, they don't know who I am or they don't know who I'm about. It's like, I don't care who you are. Who are you right now in this moment? What are you going to show up as, right? So what were you kind of keeping in your mind when you were walking out there? Man, it was just basically, you know, just me just already making up my mind before I came to Vegas or even in the adjustment, room, making up my mind on what it was going to be. And I think when it comes to people, you have to really be intentional, make up in your mind what the outcome is going to be. No matter what happens, no matter what happens, no matter what the crowd says, no matter how bright the lights are. I've been training for eight, nine weeks. I've made it up in my mind. This is what's going to happen. I don't care if he hits me with a tough shot out. Okay, I know he's fast. I know he can dodge. I know he can do this and that. But I'm not going anywhere. He's going to have to feel me every second of every round. Period. That's one thing I just kept in my mind the whole time, even walking out there. I've already seen this over and over and over and over, hundreds of times in camp for the last 10 weeks. Yeah, I knew this was going to happen. Okay, yeah, I knew everything was going to look like this. Let's go. I've already envisioned this whole deal. Hold it over and over and over again. So stay focused. That's it. Stay focused and go do it. Stay focused and go do it. I already made it up. That's it. This is going to happen. So as soon as the bell rings, I'm running straight at him. Nothing is going to change. (laughs) I love that. Andre Berto, I think that's a great place for us to put a bow on this. And that's a great piece of advice for everybody. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're transitioning, if you're in college, going to the professional world, whatever it is, like you said, make up your mind, commit to it. There's one level of commitment, and that's total, right? And that's it. And find out what you want to do, fully commit to it. Don't let all the distractions come into play because there's going to be a lot of them and everything else is going to sound really good and real cute. Stay down there on what the situation is. That's it. What you pick, what you choose to do, stay focused on it. Then they'll see you on the other side. I love it. Everybody follow Andre Berto, figure out what's going on, and understand, listen, the harvest is coming. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Harvest is coming, man. Stay focused, man. Everything that you've been praying for is on the other side of that giant. Harvest is coming, man. Agreed. Thank you so much, my friend. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, my guy. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com. Join his Okta Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.